Let's pray as we come to continue our sermon series in the book of Isaiah and read and preach from Isaiah chapter 11. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us. We thank you that you are a God who chooses to make himself known and you have chosen to make yourself known to us through your word in scripture. We thank you so much for the Bible, Lord God, and for all the blessings contained in your word. Lord, I pray as I preach, as I read and as I preach from Isaiah chapter 11, may I speak words of truth. May I speak words that glorify you. And I pray for all our hearts listening and receiving this morning. Lord God, I ask that you would lift our eyes to see the beauty and the wonder and the majesty of our Lord Jesus Christ. Increase our faith in him today. And Lord, I pray for a greater thirst and hunger for your Holy Spirit as a consequence of this word preached this morning. Come be with us now. Come move in our midst for your glory. In Jesus' name. Amen. I wonder, have you ever been sleeping peacefully in a dark room when someone abruptly pulls open the curtains and light floods into the room and you have to shield your eyes from the brightness that's pouring into your bedroom? When you've been steeped in darkness, when the light shines, it shines brighter. I wonder whether you've ever been caught outside in a thunderstorm and it's heavy rain and thunder and lightning and you're soaked to the skin because of how much rain is pouring and then the cloud breaks and the sun shines through and the sun warms you in the thunderstorm. You know, when you're cold and wet, the sun's rays feel warmer. When you're thirsty, the drink tastes sweeter and more refreshing. When you're exhausted, the bed feels softer and more inviting. And that's very, very good news for us here in Christchurch, Fairham, because for the past two weeks, we've been preaching through Isaiah chapter 9 and Isaiah chapter 10. And we've just done two chapters, two weeks worth, and it's all been about God's wrath upon sin, the way God is righteous and just, and therefore he must punish wrongdoing. He must punish sin. And so we've had two weeks of preaching about the wrath and anger of God upon sin. But now like a thunderstorm that's coming to an end and the sun shining through the clouds. But now, in Isaiah chapter 11, there is a breakthrough. The, the, the wrath of God described in Isaiah 9 and 10 ends and a new message of hope comes forth in Isaiah chapter 11. I pray we would know that relief and that joy of the sun breaking through the clouds. I pray we might know warmth and light in our hearts this morning as we read Isaiah chapter 11, because Isaiah chapter 11 is all about Christ. Isaiah chapter 11 is all about our Lord and Saviour as Christians, Jesus 
Christ. It's a passage written over 700 years before Jesus was even born, and yet it speaks so clearly and wonderfully about him who was born to be saviour of the world. You will remember uh, last week in chapter 10, God was portrayed as a majestic, terrifying gardener or a woodsman. He, he's pictured going out and burning up all the briars and thorns of the nation of Assyria, symbolising the sins of the Assyrian Empire. God burns them all up in judgment. He was God was portrayed as destroying the great tree of Assyria. He's a woodsman cutting down branches and tree trunks in power and glory. He's also portrayed as a gardener or woodsman cutting down the nation of Israel so that only a stump in the ground remains. You remember those, that picture of God, the majestic gardener, bringing judgment upon Israel and Assyria. And I want you to imagine now just a stump. The tree of Israel has been cut down, so only a stump remains. Because now in chapter 11, from the destruction that was wrought, from the stump that remains in the ground, a shoot of hope grows. The nation of Israel is just a stump, but a shoot of hope is growing for the Israelites. Now let me read to you from Isaiah chapter 11, and I will read the whole chapter. So that's 16 verses. Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 to 16. Let me give you a little bit of time to find the passage if you're reading along at home. Um, so once again, the passage is Isaiah 11, verses 1 to 16. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. 
In that day the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath and from the coastlands of the sea. He will raise a signal for the nations and will assemble the banished of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. The jealousy of Ephraim shall depart and those who harass Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim will not, will not be jealous of Judah, and Judah shall not harass Ephraim. But they shall swoop down on the shoulder of the Philistines in the west, and together they shall plunder the people of the east. They shall put out their hand against Edom and Moab, and the Ammonites shall obey them. And the Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the sea of Egypt, and will wave his hand over the river with his scorching breath, and strike it into seven channels. And he will lead people across in sandals. There will be a highway from Assyria for the remnant that remains of his people, as there was for Israel when they came up from the land of Egypt. Isaiah chapter 11 is a chapter of hope, it's a chapter of triumph, and it's and it's a wonderful encouragement to us this morning. Now, at the start of Isaiah chapter 11, Israel is described as the stump of Jesse. Now, if you know your Bibles, you may well know that Jesse was King David's father. So this shoot that emerges from the stump of Jesse is being portrayed as the new David. David was the greatest king in all of Israel's history. And so this shoot that emerges from the stump of Jesse is the new David. A new great king in Israel comes forth, described as a shoot in Isaiah chapter 11. And we know as Christians that this is a prophecy fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, he was a descendant of Jesse and of King David, who was the new David, who was the new great king. He was the Messiah to come and to save the world. And so this is a very exciting sermon to preach about Jesus Christ, the shoot from the stump of Jesse, who will rescue all the world. And the first thing I want us to see about this shoot, about Jesus Christ in Isaiah chapter 11, is in verse 2. And it's the fact that Jesus's ministry was empowered by the Holy Spirit. That's what it says in verse 2, doesn't it? The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon Jesus. Now, when we think about the work of the Holy Spirit as Christians, we tend to think about the Holy Spirit's work, we tend to think about his work from Pentecost onwards. We know that on the day of Pentecost, after Jesus has risen from the dead and gone to be seated with his Father in heaven, on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit is poured out upon Jesus's apostles in power and the Holy Spirit comes and anoints Jesus' apostles so that they can preach the word boldly. They can tell others about Jesus' life and death and resurrection from the dead. And not only can they preach it with boldness, but also the Holy Spirit comes and he grants the apostles power so they can do amazing miracles. So the word comes with great miracles and great signs. And since that day, every Christian, every person who believes in Jesus Christ for salvation has received the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
And when the Holy Spirit comes, the first thing he does is grant a person saving faith. The Holy Spirit opens your eyes so you see Jesus as Lord and Saviour. You believe in him for forgiveness of sins. And then the Holy Spirit starts to shape you and change you. He gives you the great the fruit of the Spirit. He fills your life with love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control. The Holy Spirit also brings gifts. The Spirit gifts us. He gives us the gift of teaching. He gives us the gift of wisdom. He gives us the gift of prophecy. He gives us the gift of, of speaking in tongues. He gives us the gifts of interpreting tongues. He gives the gifts of service and leadership. And all kinds of different gifts are given to different individual Christians by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so we, when we think of the work of the Spirit, that's what we think. We think of Pentecost and the gifts and the fruit and the, and the faith that that he, the Holy Spirit, gives to Christians. And because we think of the work of the Holy Spirit primarily as from Pentecost onwards, we tend to, as Christians, neglect thinking about the work of the Holy Spirit before Pentecost. The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity, God himself, and so he existed in eternity with God the Father, with God the Son, and, and God the Holy Spirit. That All three persons existed eternally, and so the Spirit himself was involved in lots of different things even before the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit was involved in creation. It says at the beginning of Genesis, the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So just as the Father and the Son were involved in creating the world, so the Spirit was there in creating the world as well. The Holy Spirit was given to individuals in the Old Testament. In Judges 6, it says, The Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon. The Holy Spirit comes upon lots of people in the Old Testament. Lots of the judges actually receive the Spirit of the Lord. In 1 Samuel 16, it says this, The Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. So this great king David was a great king because he had received the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit had rushed upon him and been with him from that day forward, from his anointing in 1 Samuel chapter 16. Now in Isaiah chapter 11, what comes into sharp focus is the way the Holy Spirit rested upon Jesus. Jesus' ministry on earth was empowered by the Holy Spirit who rested upon him. And when the Holy Spirit rested upon Jesus, the Holy Spirit brought Jesus wisdom and knowledge, counsel and might, knowledge and fear of the Lord. That's what it says in verse 2. I want to give you a little bit of theology, a little bit of theology for you this Sunday morning. Jesus Christ is one person but with two natures. No one else in history was like that. We're all human beings and we have one nature, the human nature. All of us have one nature. We're one person. I'm Duncan Sills, one person. And I have one nature, which is the human nature, for I am a human. One person, one nature. But Jesus was unique because he was conceived of the Holy Spirit and yet born of the Virgin Mary. Jesus is one person but with two natures, from the Holy Spirit, the divine nature. He is God himself, 
Jesus is God. He is fully God. He has the divine nature, but he has a second nature. He has the human nature from his mother, Mary. And so we can speak of Jesus Christ being fully God and fully human. One person, Jesus Christ, but two natures, the divine nature and the human nature, together in one person. Now, where did Jesus's wisdom and might and perfection come from? I think without Isaiah chapter 11 and some other New Testament passages, we might think that all the good stuff in Jesus came from his divine nature. We might say that his wisdom came from his divinity, his might came from his divinity. And in a sense, within the person of Jesus, the divine nature conquered the imperfections of the human nature. So Jesus is wrapped in human flesh, so in that sense he's fully human. But in reality, the way Jesus thought and the way Jesus acted was all his divine nature. And the human nature had nothing to do with his love or his perfection or his wisdom. That's what we might think. The divine nature conquers Jesus's human nature. That's a wrong way of thinking about the person of Jesus Christ. Because in this passage, in Isaiah chapter 11, and in the Gospels, in Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, those passages paint a picture of Jesus, which say, yes, Jesus was wise and holy and perfect in his divine nature. Of course, the divine nature is perfect. God himself is perfect. So Jesus's divine nature was perfect. But because of the indwelling Holy Spirit, because of the anointing of the Holy Spirit upon Jesus's human nature, his human nature was also perfect. In, in fact, this passage speaks of Jesus's wisdom and his might and his counsel and his knowledge and his obedience to God the Father coming from the anointing of the Holy Spirit. The Gospels make this a big deal. The Gospels often talk about the Holy Spirit being anointed by the Holy Spirit. So in John 3 verse 34, it says of Jesus that he received the Holy Spirit without measure. He received the fullness of the Holy Spirit. And in Matthew, Mark and the Gospel of Luke, they tell the story of Jesus's baptism. And if you know the story of Jesus's baptism, when Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist, the heavens opened and the Holy Spirit, like a dove, descended upon Jesus Christ. He was anointed by the Holy Spirit for his ministry in that moment at his baptism. So all, through, all four of the Gospels talk about Jesus being anointed and being empowered by the Holy Spirit. Now, if you read those Gospels, you'll see that after Jesus's baptism, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, drives Jesus out into the wilderness. So Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist. He receives the Holy Spirit. He's anointed by the Holy Spirit in an amazing way. And then the Spirit drives him out into the wilderness. And in the wilderness, Jesus is tempted by Satan. Satan meets with Jesus as he fasts in the wilderness and he tempts him. And in those passages in the gospel, there's lots of deliberate allusions to the story of Adam and Eve and the temptation that they received from the serpent, from Satan in the Garden of Eden. Because in Genesis, Adam, the first Adam, gave in to the temptations of Satan. Satan tempted Adam 
with the fruit, and Adam ate of the fruit, sinning and disobeying against God, gave in to temptation and failed. And so all humanity descended from Adam and Eve, who had given in to the temptations of Satan and disobedience, were also born into disobedience against God. But now, in the Gospels, in Jesus Christ, who's been anointed by the Holy Spirit, he goes out into the wilderness, he's tempted by Satan, but Jesus, unlike the first Adam, does not give in to that temptation. Instead, Jesus, the second Adam, overcomes Satan. He quotes scripture in the power of the Spirit and drives Satan away. He is perfect and blameless in all, he, all his ways. He does not give in to sinful temptation, but lives perfectly and blameless, empowered by the Holy Spirit. And so we have these, these two contrasts. We have the sinful first Adam, the perfect, blameless second Adam. It's this wonderful picture of the perfection and sinlessness of Jesus Christ. And so we don't speak of Jesus Christ as perfect just because he is God. We don't say that Jesus's divine nature was perfect, but his human nature was imperfect. But fortunately, Jesus's divine nature overcame Jesus's human nature. No, we instead we talk about Jesus's divine nature being perfect because it's divine. It's from God. But we also speak of Jesus's human nature being made perfect by the empowerment and the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Sinclair Ferguson describes Jesus Christ as fully realized human holiness and that happened because the spirit the holy spirit rested upon christ and granted him holiness that he might be perfect in all his ways and so we speak of jesus as the perfect example of what humanity truly looks like humanity anointed by the holy spirit and therefore living in wisdom and knowledge and in counsel and in might and in knowledge of God, and in fear of the Lord, and in joy at obeying the Lord's commandments. So, having considered the theology of the Holy Spirit anointing and resting upon Jesus Christ, let's look more, more closely at Isaiah chapter 11, and consider the qualities that the Holy Spirit gives to Jesus Christ in that anointing. And firstly, you'll see in verse 2, that the Spirit is described as the Spirit of wisdom and understanding. So when the Holy Spirit anoints Jesus, the Spirit himself grants to Jesus that wisdom and understanding that we see so clearly and so often in the Gospels, in Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. Even age 12, in Luke chapter 2, Jesus amazes the teachers and the scribes at Jerusalem by demonstrating his understanding of Old Testament scriptures and answering difficult questions. You know, it's amazing. Even age 12, Jesus was full of wisdom and understanding. In Jesus' adult ministry, the scribes come and quiz Jesus and ask him questions. And every single time, Jesus gives an answer that's full of wisdom, full of truth, and always gets to the heart of the matter. He's, he's, Jesus is so wise to answer questions in a way that challenges the person who's asking the question. He's full of wisdom. He's full of understanding. The Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon ever preached in all of history, preached by Jesus on the Mount, is a sermon of wisdom. At the very end of that sermon, this is what Jesus says. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house upon the rock. 
In other words, all the preceding teaching I've brought is about wisdom. If you hear these words and do them, you will be wise. So the Sermon on the Mount is a sermon of wisdom, and such wisdom is displayed in that sermon. And that's what we can say. The anointed Holy Spirit granted Jesus such wisdom, great wisdom and great understanding truly belongs to our Lord Jesus Christ. That's clear from the Gospels and it's clear from this passage here in Isaiah chapter 11. So so the Spirit, Spirit anoints wisdom and understanding upon Jesus. He also is a spirit of wisdom, uh, sorry, a spirit of counsel and of might. So Jesus doesn't just keep his wisdom and his understanding selfishly to himself. No, Jesus gives good counsel. He advises the people around him. He helps the people around them. Even now in heaven, Jesus grants good advice to those who seek him. And so I pray during this season, you would know and seek the counsel of Jesus in prayer on a daily basis. How good is it to wake up in the morning and say, Lord, I have a day before me and I want to seek you and your counsel and your advice for how I should use it. Would you guide me in your ways? May I read your word and apply what's in your word? May I read the Sermon on the Mount and do what it says like the wise man who built his house upon the rock. It's such a joy to be able to seek Jesus and to go to him for counsel and advice through all of life's situations. And I pray you would do it daily right now. Pray to him for his counsel. But the Spirit also gives Jesus might. Now, I wonder whether you noticed it, um, that the Spirit is the Spirit of counsel and of might. And in Isaiah chapter 9, in a prophecy about the son who was to be born, it described that baby. Was, the baby was given the name Wonderful Counselor and Mighty God. So here in Isaiah 11, there's kind of an allusion to the prophecy of Isaiah chapter 9 as well. The Spirit brings counsel. And the Spirit also brings might. Jesus' mightiness, his strength, shown in his determination to go to the cross and die for the sins of the world. He He did not shrink back, but he was mighty in following and completing his mission. His might shown in the resurrection. Death was not strong enough to hold Jesus, but Jesus, mighty, rose from the grave and defeated death. But also Jesus' might, is shown in his amazing miracles and the wonders that he worked when he was on the earth. And we have to be a little careful here because some of Jesus's miracles explicitly revealed Jesus's divine nat- uh, nature. So for instance, when Jesus, Jesus walks on the water, after Jesus gets into the boat, The disciples are amazed at Jesus' amazing miracle of walking on water. And they say, truly, you are the son of God. So there was something about that miracle of walking on water that really did reveal Jesus' divine nature. The fact that he was the son of God. He was God in human flesh. But many of the miracles, particularly Jesus' miracles of healing and driving out demons, were done in the power of the Holy Spirit. This is Acts chapter 10, verses 38. Peter is preaching, and this is what he says about Jesus. You know how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, 
for God was with him. In other words, when Jesus healed, and when, particularly when he healed those people who were oppressed by the devil, he did that in the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Those miracles were done by Jesus because of the power given him by the Holy Spirit in the anointing described in Isaiah chapter 11. The spirit of might granted Jesus the miracle, to, the, the power, sorry, and the might to do amazing miracles of healing. Jesus' power for the miraculous came from the Holy Spirit according to this verse in Isaiah 11 and this verse in Acts 10, verse 38. It was part of his perfect, spirit-anointed humanity when Jesus healed the sick. And I think that gives us tremendous hope and faith as Christians, that we too have received the Holy Spirit. That's what Pentecost is all about, is the Holy Spirit coming upon all Christians. And so we too can pray for healing and pray for the miraculous in confidence that the same spirit who anointed Jesus Christ also rests and resides within us. So, in verse 2, the Holy Spirit anoints Jesus with wisdom, understanding, counsel and might. And finally, in verse 2, the final pair of things that Jesus is, is brought by this anointing of the Holy Spirit is knowledge of the Lord and fear of the Lord. The spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord is described at the end of verse 2. By the anointing of the Spirit, Jesus Christ the man knew God the Father. He had knowledge of the Lord that was given by the Holy Spirit. The same is true for us, by the way. We cannot know the Son without the Holy Spirit. For the Holy Spirit comes upon a person and brings knowledge of the Son. And through knowledge of the Son, we are also given knowledge of the Father. No one comes to the Father except by the Son. And so that's why when the Holy Spirit comes upon a Christian, they are changed inwardly. And so they can cry out in their prayers, Abba, Father. It's the Holy Spirit who brings knowledge of God as Father into our hearts as Christians. Now, this knowledge of God that Jesus receives by the anointing of the Holy Spirit is accompanied by fear of the Lord, according to that verse. And this is what Isaiah means by fear of the Lord. He means a respect and appreciation of the awesome power and perfection of God such that it creates obedience in Jesus Christ. And Jesus had such fear awe, wonder, respect and reverence and appreciation for the power and the perfection of God the Father that he always acted in obedience. When you completely and utterly revere and respect someone, you obey everything they say. And in the same way, by the Spirit, Jesus had this fear of the Lord that meant he always obeyed his Father in heaven. In other words, the Holy Spirit is the spirit of obedience. And so by the Holy Spirit, Jesus was able to walk obediently in all of God's commandments. When we speak of God, of Jesus' holiness and his perfection in all his ways, we're speaking about the Holy Spirit anointing upon him that granted him this fear of the Lord and obedience to the Father's commands. Now, I think the beginning of verse 3 should also really be in verse 2. So the Verse 3 says, And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. 
So Jesus is anointed with the Holy Spirit that brings him knowledge of God and brings him a fear of the Lord so that he would obey all his ways. And not only that, but also a delight in fearing the Lord. Jesus was not only obedient to all of God the Father's commands, he also delighted in obeying the Father's commandments. I love this about Jesus. You know, we often think about Jesus as wise and mighty and obedient and holy. It's important to reflect on those things, but we also think a lot about those things. I wonder how often we think about the joy of Christ, the delight of Jesus. You know, Jesus delighted to obey his Father's commandments. And that's right here in in Isaiah 11, verse 3. It speaks about Jesus' delight in obeying the commandments of God. And that's an amazing place to be. That's what perfect humanity really looks like. It's to not only obey all of God's commandments, but to love doing it, to be filled with joy as you obey God's commandments. That's what Jesus demonstrated in his life through this anointing of the Holy Spirit. He had knowledge of the Lord. He had fear of the Lord and he had joy in fearing the Lord. And so this picture of Jesus in Isaiah 11 verse 2 is, is so wonderful, I think. It's such a wonderful picture of Jesus, empowered by the Holy Spirit. He's wise. He's understanding. He gives good counsel. He's mighty to do the miraculous. He knows God and he's revealing the truth of God in all his ways as he goes around preaching and teaching the crowds. He's teaching them the truth about God. He's fearing God. He's always obeying the commands. I love that verse where Jesus says, I just do what I see my father doing. If I see my father working over here, I go there and I, and I act in that because that's what my father's doing. And I want to partner with him. I want to follow him. I want to obey him in all I do. And so Jesus is obedient in all his ways through the anointing of the Holy Spirit and he delights in doing the will of the Father. He's full of joy as well, wisdom and joy, understanding and might. The the picture of Jesus in Isaiah 11 verse 2 is so gloriously beautiful. Now, I've spent a long time talking about verse 2. So let me very quickly run through the rest of the passage and the rest of the wonderful characteristics of Jesus Christ as shown in chapter 11. So firstly, in verses 3 to 6, Jesus is shown to be a just judge. He judges fairly, not by what he sees or what he hears, but rather in a truthful way. He said, judge not by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge. Now you'll notice that justice in Isaiah chapter 11 has two sides. And so in the second half of verse 4, it says of Jesus that he punishes wickedness. It's, It's a pretty terrifying picture to be honest of Jesus. In verse 10 we had the terrifying picture of Jesus cutting down trees. Well in Isaiah 11 verse 4 we have the terrifying picture of Jesus destroying the wicked with just a breath. That's how mighty our Jesus is with just a breath. He can destroy the wicked and when he comes again in judgment that is what he will do. He will destroy the wicked with his breath. That's one side of God's justice judgment upon sin, judgment upon the wicked. The other side of Christian justice, the other side of Jesus' justice is a help for the poor and the meek. He will judge 
for the meek, it says in verse 4. He will decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And so Christian justice has two sides. It has a an understanding that God will rightly judge the sin of the world and destroy wickedness, but it also has a, a love and care for the poor and the meek and, and wanting to bring fairness and justice into their lives. Uh, Christian justice has that social justice side as well as the sinful justice of God idea. Those two things come together. I, I think this is important because so often Christians are either one or the other. There's lots of people who love social justice and love caring for the poor and the needy, but they kind of hate the doctrine of God's justice upon the sin and they kind of are scared of preaching it, scared of speaking about it and don't speak it very often. And there are other people on the other side who are very are very eager to preach about God's justice and judgment upon sin. They don't mind, but they often don't couple that with love and care for the meek and the poor. And I want us as Christ Church Fairham to be good at both those things. I want us to preach the true justice of God. People need to hear that there is a judgment of God's wrath that comes upon sin. They need to flee and they need to run to Christ and believe in him. But they also need the church to rise up and to help the meek and the poor. And we need to get better at that as a church. And I hope to lead us in the future into really loving and caring for those who are poor and needy in this world because Christ's justice has two sides. He's completely just in punishing wickedness and completely just in bringing equity for the meek and the poor. In verses six to nine, Jesus's kingdom is shown to be a kingdom of peace. These verses have a future fulfillment after Jesus's second coming. When Jesus returns again, he will establish his kingdom on the earth. The new heavens and the new earth will be rebuilt and his kingdom that will be built here will be so peaceful that even wild animals, predator and prey, will lie down next to one another. It's a beautiful picture of the peace of the future kingdom of God. We need not fear any animals or any threat because there will be peace. And I love the end of verse 9. As the waters cover the sea, so the earth will be full of the knowledge of God. You know what? I don't know any part of the sea that doesn't have water on it. It's that all the seas have water at the top. And in the same way, there'll be no part of the earth that will not be full of the knowledge of God. In fact, it's the knowledge of God that brings this glorious peace where animals can lie side by side. Jesus is shown to be the king of peace in verses six to nine. In verse 10, we're reminded that this kingdom is not just for the Jews, but once again, the other nations are being are being called to inquire of the Lord. And so this new kingdom that is coming, the, the kingdom of Christ, the kingdom of Christianity of which we are part, is a kingdom where all nations, all people who believe in Christ can be brought in and saved. It's not just the Israelites who have promised this great kingdom. It's all nations. And also in verse 10, there's a cryptic clue about Jesus's empty tomb. It's kind of an amazing verse to me, verse 10, actually. I wish I had more time to spend on it. But the nations are inquiring of the root of Jesse. The nations are inquiring of Jesus. And yet he has a resting place. So how can someone be answering questions and having a resting place 
unless he has been resurrected from that resting place. And that would explain why the resting place is seen as glorious. And so I can imagine there's going to be a tomb in the new heaven and the new earth that we go and look at and see the empty tomb of Jesus and go, wow, that's a glorious place. That's the place where Jesus was laying dead, but now he is raised. The tomb is empty. There is no dead body in there, for Jesus was raised in glory. His resting place is glorious. He is alive because there's been a resurrection. And finally, in verses 11 to 16, we have a picture of Jesus gathering his people together. All the, who believe in him from all different nations are gathered together while he also punishes the evil nations like Assyria and Egypt who have oppressed his people. And so verses 11 to 16, to sum it up very briefly, is a picture of Jesus' great victory. Jesus is wise and understanding at the start of chapter 11. At the end of chapter 11, he's seen as victorious as he gathers his people from all over the different nations. And so here, in Isaiah chapter 11, 700 years before Jesus was even born, we have what I think is a wonderful, beautiful, prophetic picture of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Saviour. He is wise. He is understanding. He gives good counsel. He is mighty. He has great knowledge of God. He is obedient to his father in fear of the Lord. And he's not just obedient, but he's joyfully obedient. It causes him delight to be fearful of the Lord and obey all his commands. He is a just judge here in Isaiah chapter 11. He's the king of peace and will usher in a truly peaceful kingdom with no war and no death and no pain. He's the king of all the nations, not just Israel, king of all the nations. And he is victorious over all the nations who have opposed his people. Jesus is victorious in chapter 11. It's a glorious, glorious picture. And I wanted to encourage you this morning. Our King Jesus is so wonderful. It's a glorious picture in Isaiah chapter 11. So how should we respond and I think there are only two ways to respond to Isaiah chapter 11. We should adore the Son and receive the Holy Spirit. We should adore the Son. All these wonderful descriptions of Christ should warm our hearts and should give life to our souls to want to worship and adore Jesus. You know what part of me just wants to jump up and down and go, Jesus, you're so magnificent. You're so wise. You're so understanding. You're so mighty. You give good counsel. You're righteous in all your ways. Your knowledge of God the Father was perfect by the anointing of the Holy Spirit. You were obedient to all his commands and you were so joyful, Lord. I love your joy. I just want to worship you. You're a great judge. You're a wonderful, victorious king. You're the king of peace. I just want to worship Jesus Christ. That's what this passage should do in our hearts. It should fill us with this desire and hunger to worship Jesus for his glorious perfection. He was the perfect human being. He was the man truly anointed by the Holy Spirit. And and this should just lift us up to want to worship King Jesus. Fill your days and weeks and months, fill your lives with the worship and adoration of the Jesus described in Isaiah chapter 11. We just, this passage makes us want to adore him, adore Jesus. But secondly, since it was the Holy Spirit himself who rested upon Jesus 
and empowered him to be like this. Isaiah 11 should also fill us with a thirst to want to seek the Holy Spirit, to want to also be anointed by the Holy Spirit, to also want the Spirit to reside within us and rest with us, stay with us, that we might have wisdom and understanding, that we might show counsel to others, that we might do mighty works for God, that we might know God and fear him and obey him. And not only that, but find delight in obeying him. You know what? This this passage not only like raises me up to worship Christ, it also brings me down onto my knees and say, Lord, I want the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of Christ, the Spirit that did such amazing things in the ministry of Christ. Lord, I want that Spirit in my life too. Lord, I need more wisdom and understanding. Pour out your Spirit. Lord, I want to give good counsel to this person. Pour out your Spirit. Lord, I want to be mighty in the Holy Spirit. Pour your Spirit out. Lord, I want to know you. There's nothing sweeter than knowing you, Lord God. Would you pour out your Spirit? And Lord, I want to obey you. I want to fear you. I want to bring you the reverence and the respect and the worship you're worthy of. Pour out your Spirit. And Lord, I want joy. I want joy in obeying your commandments. Pour out your Spirit. How should we respond to Isaiah chapter 11? We should adore the Son and receive the Holy Spirit. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we adore you this morning. You are wise and understanding. You give good counsel and you are mighty. You have full knowledge of God and you you were fearful of him in your ministry on the earth such that you obeyed all of the Father's instructions. And you were joyful in doing it. Lord, you are so magnificent. You are the just judge. You don't judge by what you see or hear, but you judge with righteousness in all your ways. You are the king of peace and you will bring a glorious kingdom of peace here on the earth. You are also victorious. You gather your people at the end of time and you destroy the wicked nations. I I praise you that you're so mighty that just a breath can destroy the wicked with you, Lord Jesus. We adore you. We worship you today. Make us more worshipful. Make us alive to these truths in Isaiah chapter 11 on a day-by-day basis that we might adore you with all that we are. But Lord, we also pray for the Holy Spirit. Lord, pour out your Holy Spirit upon us. May we be Christ-like in all our ways. May we be wise and understanding. May we bring good counsel and be mighty. May we have knowledge of you and fear you and find joy in fearing and obeying your commands. Please, Lord, by the power of your Holy Spirit, come and anoint us. May we be peacemakers here on the earth. May we celebrate the victory we have in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit, be poured out upon the people of Christ Church Bearham and all who are listening right now. Make make Christ alive in our hearts that we might adore him and grant us the gifts described in Isaiah chapter 11. We want to honour you. We want to glorify you, Lord Jesus, and we want to be like you by the power of the Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. Anoint us and empower us to be Christ-like, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen.